There is a, an ancient tradition of people who go on uh, journeys or who travel uh, to tell their stories when they return. Whether it's um, you know, a long travel to other places, it's a very ancient tradition of returning to the community and telling one's stories. And sometimes they're more outer journeys and can take many forms. <coughs> sometimes they're more inner journeys. The, in shamanic cultures, the shaman might be on a kind of a journey, an inner, more of an inner journey, might be off for a week and come back to the community with a, a song or some kind of uh, uh, mm, teaching of some kind. You know, and this can take many forms. Um, in recent uh, American culture, this would take the form of slideshows of one's vacation <laughs> offered to one's friends and family, perhaps at too great length. <laughs> you know, and now it seems to occur by uh, posting photos online. It's a contemporary version of the same ancient archetype. <laughs> you know. And uh, I was on, along with Sylvia, on a one-month retreat, and I, I wanted, in a way, to, and along with, and along with Marty, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like to be acknowledged too because I'm yeah. part of this song. Yeah, Marty, who was part of this community, and uh, was also there, and we we actually had a meal, all three of us together, right at the beginning of the retreat, and and uh, many other friends. I realized I had uh, uh, four friends. Who, were, who did the retreat with whom I had taught. Uh, and about six or seven people who've been students, and about 20 or 30 who I've worked with to some extent. You know, so a lot of familiar faces. And I uh, thought I'd say a little bit about the basic uh, nature of the retreat, and some about my own experiences uh, of two kinds. One, some of the more general insights which uh, came, and some of the more specific ones connected with the uh, practices uh, that I did, and want to share that in a way which connects with our own practice and connects, you know, even I may do some experiential practices during, during the talk which can connect with some of what um, I was exploring, um, because in a way, uh, the retreat really touched on most aspects of our practice. It touched on most of the different practices we do. You know, I did four basic practices, concentration practice, just being with one object, being with the breath, which I did for the first nine days. And then I brought in metta, her loving kindness, which I did during the meals, typically. So I would typically do loving kindness for an individual. I'd go through, I have my own set of people I give loving kindness to, and I would finish with that. 
I would kind of look around, choose a person, get an image of the person, close my eyes, keep chewing, <laughs> say four phrases, and then open my eyes and look for someone else. It was quite wonderful. You know, I don't know if, what it would be if everyone did that in the dining hall. <laughs> Looking around, but it was, uh, it was quite sweet. And uh, that, that started after the first nine days. And then also at that time, I started doing what is basically insight practice, focusing on uh, uh, particularly on what we call the three characteristics, which are to look for change and impermanence, the changing nature of experience, and to look for any moments when there was any suffering or what in, in this morning gathering I've often called a thick, thick, not, not sick, thick sense of self. And, uh, and that was for about five days. I'll say a little more about this as later. And then the last part of the retreat, almost the last two weeks, was more being with a large and spacious awareness, which I'll, I'll say quite a bit more about as, as I get there. The uh, retreat itself um, had a schedule, and for myself, I actually um, almost entirely stayed in my room. I didn't go into the meditation hall, which is what I've been doing for about the, a lot for the last seven or eight years, which, which works for me, because I like to do uh, longer sittings particularly and have some flexibility. And so I would... <coughs> wake up about five, which was the normal time, sometimes a little earlier. Five was the normal wake-up time. And we would go to the normal sleep time was 9.30 or 10. And would do a qigong, along with Marty and Sylvia. We all did qigong together at 5.30. And then we'd do a, a short sitting for about half hour, then breakfast. And then typically I'd take a long walk down along the road towards, towards uh, Sir Francis Drake, take a, take a walk and hang out with a, a tree that's I like for, for a while, and come back and I would actually stop and, and I'd um, have a short conversation with my father in a sense. Some of you know my father who used to come to this gathering died about a little over eight years ago. We have a bench for him that's out in the courtyard, which some of you have seen. And you can go look for it. It has his name on it and has the motto, which came from him, the continuous pursuit of truth, knowledge, and wisdom, which is, came from him. He actually uh, gave me a plaque. He was a scientist and had a plaque on his desk which said, Dr. Rothberg. And when I got my uh, doctorate, he gave it to me, and he said, I pass this on. It has always signified my continuous pursuit of truth, knowledge, and wisdom. And we have a bench for him, and I go sit there early in the morning, and I talk with him. I'll, I'll come back to this. I, um, I'm not claiming anything particular happens, but it is a little magical. And I would actually go to that bench also after the evening meal, and I would, in my mind, I would talk with him. And, and I'll, I'll come back and say more about that. So then I'd come back, clean up, do, you know, do different things. And then I'd have about a three, three or three and a half hour practice session in my room where I would basically practice continuously. I wouldn't sit for that long. I would stand up, sometimes do a little qigong, 
might sit an hour, hour and a half, stand up, change posture, relax my body, sit back down, and so forth. Uh, and then we do some walking for maybe half an hour before a meal. Uh, have a meal, you know, do my metta, looking around, and then come back. Um, then I had, had to do my, my work meditation, which was cleaning the men's bathroom, um, which I did after lunch. Then I took a little nap and then had a, another and then an afternoon session, which was similar to the morning, about three hours, three and a, three and a quarter, three and a half hours. And then we'd have an evening meal and go down and visit my father and then come back, take care of things, and then have an evening session. Typically, we'd go to sleep, you know, 9.30 to 10 or so. So about, you know, six or seven hours, which, which is enough when one's meditating. Uh, so, a few, a few themes which really uh, came from the retreat which were important. Partly, and those of you who've done retreats know this, there's something really powerful and important about being away from one's daily habits and daily routine. And for me, it, it's, I have almost the same message all the time, which is that I'm too busy. It's really so sweet to slow down. And again, we know this. We probably know this if we, if we take vacations or just do retreats. And there's something... Uh, that's hard to resist in our culture, that's very speedy. I think we all know that, even, probably even if we're retired, you know. And, and uh, you know, to be away from email for a month and away from electronics is very helpful because, of course, the busyness can do things and get things done and it's helpful in many ways. But what I find for myself is that um, I get a little bit out of alignment because of the busyness and I don't always remember my priorities. And retreats like this, I think vacations can be similar, but, but retreats are wonderful. For me, they've always been about realigning myself and, and slowing down and trying to... Uh, trying to bring that, those understandings into daily life, which has its challenges, of course. You know, so sometimes it just is clarity, I need to drop this or move in this direction or do that. And retreats are quite amazing. And of course, they are privileges to be able to take time off. Whether, you know, it's not, not everyone can do exactly what I did in terms of the finances or in terms of the uh, leaving responsibilities, but there's actually room for creativity here. You know, I have one friend, uh, Dana De Palma, who's on the teachers' council here, who has a young child, and she makes her retreats work by doing, uh, having uh, a period of retreat that includes going home and being with family life, and doing five or six hours of formal practice a day but having the rest of the day totally in the spirit of retreat. And so there's a lot of creativity possible, you know, if something doesn't work for us. That what is incredible about this place is the level of support and the level of um, how the land and everything supports us. So the slowing down, 
really, really uh, crucial. And it's also coming back to this powerful intention which we teach here, which we, I think, each gradually internalize, which is the teaching that we can take everything in our life as a learning opportunity. That the human life is about learning essentially to be more wise, more loving, more compassionate, and to fulfill one's own personal gifts in whatever ways one can. But especially to take everything as learning. And a retreat environment does that beautifully. To really see everything as learning. No matter what happens. It's not what I prefer, what I, what I don't like. You know. you know, one person said not to take everything as either a curse or a blessing. But how do I take everything as a learning opportunity? Or as I think I heard Mark say um, six or eight weeks ago, another effing growth opportunity. <laughs> oh, another growth opportunity has come my way. Uh-oh. <laughs> you know. So, but really, but the, the support makes that possible. And that really is, that really is, um, means having everything in our lives, we could say, be about practice, be about learning, whatever vocabulary we use. And a retreat supports that motivation and intention so powerfully. There's a poem that I love from Rilke. He uses the um, language of God, but I think it's very similar. God speaks to each of us as he makes us, then walks with us silently out of the night. These are the words we dimly hear. You, sent out beyond your recall, go to the limits of your longing. Embody me, flare up like a flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Another aspect that was quite powerful for me uh, was deepened insight into impermanence and death. And so that's a perennial theme in retreats. But there was something very, very interesting. You know, that I mean, I'll come in a while to talking about just watching change moment to moment. But again, when one goes to one's deeper priorities, often one has a sense of the impermanence of things and change. And one interesting perspective that I had is of doing like a four-week retreat. At a certain point, I had this interesting insight, which is that at first, four weeks seems like such a long time. And there's no sense of time. And just, one's just in it. One's just in the middle of the retreat. And then at a certain point, one realizes this will end. <clears throat> there is a, you know, there's a line that some of you know in the Psalms, which says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. In Psalm 90, 12. And I thought of that line, that our days are numbered, you know. And it was very clear from the retreat. And at a certain point I said, hmm, 
we have a certain number of days left. It's very clear here, but this is no different than life. Right? And that line in the psalm is designed to make us reflect on what's important. Number our days. One translation of that says, so that the brevity of life will lead us to wisdom. And so that is a strong uh, experience that I think and many of us have. And of course we have that at all sorts of other moments as well. We can have that sense. Interestingly, um, this sense of going inside, very powerful being with one's own experience. And, you know, as, as most of you know, I do have a background in connecting meditation with social service and social action. And the world was there in the retreat and the sense of the issues, you know. And they particularly manifested in my dreams. You know, about a third of the dreams I had took me to the major social issues of our time. <laughs> you know, I, I woke up, you know, rested. It wasn't, wasn't that bad. But it was like, it was like, okay, that's, we're not getting away from that. That we're just, this is training for right now. And that's a reality, right? That's a reality. So I've now had one evening where the primary theme in several dreams was exploring racial tensions. Another one was um, looking at uh, questions of um, violence. I had one really interesting dream, which was a little, which was a little frightening, where I dreamt that um, aliens were programming negative thoughts in people. <laughs> aliens were programming negative thoughts in people, sowing confusion, fear, and disruption. <laughs> when I woke up, I said, the aliens might not be science fiction aliens. <laughs> There are many sowers of negative thoughts. But anyway, that, so that was a dream. Um, another dream towards the end of the retreat, I had uh, um, five straight dreams. And, and often in the evening, I would remember many dreams. And this evening, I would wake up, write down a dream, go back to sleep. And I had five straight ecological dreams. You know, and the first two were actually about um, uh, some breakdown, social breakdowns. You know, there was, there was a lot of fear in the society. I had two dreams, actually the same dream, that I woke up, wrote things down, then went back in and the same dream, went into the same dream. Maybe you've done that at times. And so, you know, that was, it was like, uh, both are important, the inner training and the outer response. But that, that was interesting. Yeah. And then there, there was, I, I thought I'd say a little bit more about this interesting work that... Um, or call it work, um, where I went and uh, was with my, uh, the bench that we, that we uh, uh, set up for my father, Simon, you know, and I would talk with him. I would so-called talk with him. And uh, typically, it would be like uh, speaking to an inner guide. He would, he would say things which were very helpful, which I, in some way, wouldn't have come up with myself. I would say, I would go down there and I'd just say, hi, how are you? He'd say, good, good to see you. And then I'd say, anything, any guidance this morning? And he would say something like, keep it simple. You know? And the, the kind of um, 
uh, guidance would be, I've actually brought my, all my guidance from him. Here is one. Take it easy. Realize how precious you are. You know? Enjoy yourself. These were on different days. There was usually something just brief like that. Um, be kind to yourself if you don't go as deeply today because of not enough sleep. You know, things like that. Um, be full, be relaxed. And then towards the, about two-thirds of the way into the retreat, you're there, keep going nowhere. <laughs> so it's kind of Zen, Zen guidance, we would say. Keep going, you're doing beautiful work. Um, stay with it. He said that a lot. Stay with it. Keep going. Be open to what occurs. Keep it simple. Don't, do, don't think too much. Be present. So I was reflecting on that. There's something there that I think uh, all of us can do, but it's interesting doing this as a daily practice. It was like checking in we can interpret that in many ways, but I, one way to interpret it is checking in to a kind of inner guide, right? That we've sometimes done in this session where we use, it's using the imagination because there was something about that that wouldn't come with my ordinary thinking mind, that kind of guidance. And it was all very simple and it felt very, very resonant. And something I think that each of us can do. It's like we can do an exercise where we just, it could be to you know, just be in touch with your grandmother or just maybe even right now go inside and is there a wise being that you might relate to? And just see, is there a wise being? If you were right here, close your eyes and a wise being just ambles up to you and taps you on the shoulder. Could be someone you know, it could be could be the Buddha, Kuan Yin, a real person. Just see if, if you've had contact with that wise being, is there one line that that wise being says to you right now? Thank you. And so that's an interesting practice. How many people, even in that short time, got in touch with, some, with something? Yeah. <coughs> and you can try that. I think I'll, I'd like to maybe come back to that practice with more time, you know, because that was a very, very brief. But it's a very interesting practice. I think we find it in many traditions. It's also used in contemporary psychology in certain ways. It's using the imagination as a tool that goes into another level of mind. And I found that very, very helpful because that really unified my day. Because I, I, I resonated with this. And where did it come from? Was it from my father? Some part of myself, internalized fa- father, who knows? But something, it really worked 
quite beautifully. And it's a practice that can be, can be very helpful. So a few words about the, the different segments of practice. Um, and these are really the main segments over all of our practice, concentration, insight practice, the heart practices, and this uh, development of an open awareness. So I'll say a little bit about each of them, then we'll have a little chance to talk. Um, we've, we've had, I think a few years ago, I gave a few talks on concentration, but it's a very important practice and we all do concentration practice to some degree when we're just with the breath. It's really about stabilizing the mind, steadying the mind, settling the mind, uh, which is really crucial both in retreat and daily life for cutting through our repetitive thoughts and being able to see them. Having enough presence of mind so we notice what's going on and we're not just so distracted. Distraction's a big issue in this culture. And concentration is really crucial. It's also pretty crucial for going more deeply in meditation. And that's why retreats are very crucial as training. And generally, if we keep practicing, especially if we have a complement of retreats and daily life practice, the baseline of concentration, um, as it were, gets higher. Concentration increases over time. Uh, It's not like we get concentrated on retreat, then we go back and back. It's possible for the level generally to increase if we practice in a certain way. And to be stronger in daily life, that permits us, when we have that negative repetitive thought that threatens to put me into a funk for two hours or two days, when I have enough concentration, I notice it almost immediately. And I say, I'm not going there. That's partly a benefit of concentration. Right? And so it's quite crucial. It's also crucial to deepen in meditation. From the Buddha, practitioners develop concentration practitioner who is concentrated understands things as they really are. And so deepening in concentration is quite interesting because it takes a lot of effort. The basic practice I did, you know, which again we can maybe come back and talk more about it, is basically being with the breath at the area of the nostril. And I I use uh, techniques that I learned that come from a, a contemporary Burmese teacher named Pawak Sayadaw. It's basically just to be with the breath all the time at the nostrils. During meals, walking, bathroom, just stay with the breath all the time. This is a retreat practice. And, and over time it deepens. And so it takes a certain amount of effort. But over time the effort has to be quite relaxed. It's like eventually it becomes great effort and great relaxation combined. Which is, I think, what we know with other, maybe other areas of our life where we're really concentrated, like maybe in your work, or those of us who may be artists or musicians. You know, you can be really, really there. And when you've done it enough, it's not tense, right? You can just be there with, because it's the natural quality of the mind to be very present, but in a relaxed way. And so a lot of the training and concentration is how to, develop that great effort with um, a great letting go, in a way, great relaxation. Because the deeper aspects of concentration only come with relaxation. And for most of us, like including myself, I had to learn, and it took some time, how to relax 
with a, with a lot of effort. It was not easy, but it's a very it's very powerful training, and it really applies to a lot of aspects of daily life. The loving kindness practice is really crucial. I think that uh, having the presence of the kind heart around as much as possible is really, really, it's really at the heart of what we do, so to speak. And that one can see, I could see this very clearly on retreat, just the, the, um, the centrality of having the kind heart present for all the ups and downs of practice, for whatever happens, of having kindness there. And so it's something so central that to have some part of one's practice or life where one inclines towards that kind heart, whatever it is, it could be all sorts of things, it could be a formal meditation practice like loving kindness or something that just brings out one's heart. It could be being with beauty as a regular practice. Okay, sorry, I have to go be with beauty. I have to listen to music or be with this tree or whatever. Something that opens one's heart that in the language of the Buddha gladdens one's heart as a regular practice, so crucial. Because I think we know, and this is a theme that we've looked at often, that um, uh, in our society particularly, we can be very harsh towards ourselves. And I know this from the different teaching on on judgment, that self-judgment is endemic in this culture. You know, and it's it's there with some very, very beautiful beings, you know, who we could look at them from the outside and say, how can that person have self-judgment or be hard on himself or herself or not be compassionate, but it's that way. You know, it's, deep, it's quite deep and it was, um, it was interesting for me to notice that even being in, for the most part, quite beautiful states, I could feel residues of um, kind of wondering if I'm okay. You know? That, and I could notice at times when I would go to meet with a teacher, I could notice residues of wanting to be seen as good and okay. You know? And these are the roots of our um, self-judgment or our judgment of others, which I think all or most of us have the, these roots. And it's, it's um, sobering to see it even at quite deep levels but the, the transformative work is to um, keep practicing and that it, it diminishes. It diminishes and a lot of the direction of meditation is actually to feel the okayness of simply being. This is our direction. Simply of presence and being is like the birthright um, of essential goodness, we could say. And so, and this is, this is for most of us, this is ongoing work. This is, and it can take a while. I know, um, I remember um, meeting a monk, was a German monk who had been, I think a monk for 30 years and been practicing a lot. And I asked him, what is your learning edge? And he said, you know, I still really want people to like me, you know? And something like what I was saying about myself. There was some sense of, some residues of 
needing external confirmation. Right? And so that's, that's deep. That's deep in us, and it's workable. You know? And these, uh, all of these practices help in that way. Um, the third practice was uh, looking into impermanence and change. This was more our traditional insight practice. When we uh, have our mindfulness practice, our insight practice, the aim of it, you know, we, you may have wondered, insight into what? And we've, we've actually looked at that. We've had some talks on the three characteristics of impermanent suffering and seeing that there's not a separate self. Um, but these are the direction of practice is towards insight into these three areas. And that's when we ask, what is insight meditation? It's about that. And so, so having days which are only dedicated to looking at impermanence was very, was quite wonderful. And it kind of opened up to this last area, which I'll take a little more time on, um, which was developing a sense of a kind of open and spacious presence which was my main practice for the last two weeks. And I've talked about that at times. It's uh, taken, I think, in the, in the tradition to be pointing and not so far away from the presence of the sacred. It's developing a sense of presence in which there's no sense of self. There's actually not even a sense of an object, but there is a kind of open uh, quality of presence. This is, this is from the Buddha. He talked about awareness as basically luminous. He said, the mind is radiant and brightly shining and it is freed from visiting defilements. And so there are practices which let us touch that kind of radiance, that kind of uh, almost like a quality of pure presence, which I think most of us know. From we have at different moments, we may have experienced a sense of pure presence, maybe being in nature, or maybe just being totally exhausted and the mind gets quiet and just, uh, but we're still there. There's something very valuable. Uh, you know, a lot of artists have cu- tried to cultivate that sense of presence without objectifying the world, where we just are open to experience, but we don't divide into objects. I've talked sometimes about how the Impressionist painters were looking at something like this. What is actually the raw nature of experience before we make objects of things, before we have self and other? You know? This is like this, in Zen, they try to get to this by asking koans, what was your face before you were born? You know, for the Buddha, paradox is often used, and the Buddha says, where consciousness is signless, boundless, all luminous, that's where earth, water, fire, and air find no footing. There both long and short, small and great, fair and foul, name and form are wholly destroyed. It's pointing to this kind of luminous presence that doesn't objectify, which we can taste at, at moments. The teachings on that come to us from the original text to some extent. It's not central in the text. It's a little bit on the margins. That sense of a luminous awareness beyond uh, ordinary objectification of the world. It also comes from the Thai forest tradition, 
uh, via Jack Cornfield especially, and uh, other teachers as well, that in the Thai forest tradition, many of the teachers talk about this as a kind of natural awareness, a kind of open awareness, which can be cultivated first in retreat and then brought into daily life. That it has qualities of luminosity, of presence, of non-objectification, and of kindness. That, are, that are, it's the basic nature, really, it's said of our being, manifests in that way. And so, a Jack's teacher, Achan Cha, was a, had this, brought this out in many ways. He said he would sometimes ask his students uh, to sit, stay with this uh, question. If you can't go forward, and you can't go back, and you can't stand still, where do you go? Should I say that again? Okay, stay with this. Okay, you're, you are in the forest in Thailand, you are in training, and your teacher says, if you can't go forward, and you can't go back, and you can't stand still, where do you go? <laughs> Up, in... Now, we are getting into the territory of Zen koans, right? Because the, the mind comes up with answers, but actually it's pointing to a quality of presence. So let me ask that again, and this time, see if you can let go of your mind. Not always, not always so easy at this time of the morning. Okay. If you can't go forward, and you can't go back, and you can't stand still, where do you go? Oh, okay, just... Okay. okay, now I'm asking you to drop language. Okay. Okay. Do it one more time. This time, see if you can, you'll notice language, but drop it, okay? See if you can do that. If you can't go forward and you can't go back and you can't stand still, where do you go? So Wachan Cha used to say, the mind is both flowing and it's still at the same time. And this is tapping into the stillness. He said it's like a still forest pool that we can, that we can um, access. He also said, rest in the knowing, so that one is being the knowing. So knowing is more of a state of being. And he said, take the one seat where you're just present. And I would try to do that practice. I sometimes thought, as I cleaned the men's bathroom, which has one toilet seat, I said, I am taking the one seat by cleaning the one seat. (laughs) So humor is important. (laughs) And this also comes from some of the Tibetan traditions. Some of you know I've sometimes, a phrase I use sometimes to access this state is one that comes from the 16th century, uh, Dagpo Tashi Namgyal, uh, Tibetan teacher. It goes, uh, open, and just let me, let's use this in the same way. See if this evokes a state of, qual- state of your, your being. Open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal. And so we can access that quality of presence, sometimes just for a moment. 
There are a lot of different techniques to access it. Sometimes in Tibetan tradition, they just say, hey! And you're supposed to look and see what happens right after that. Hey! Then there's usually said to be a gap, some gap that you tune into. Another text I read, I'll, I'll just read one more, one more. Uh, is from a great 14th century Tibetan teacher named Long Chenpa. He said, rest spontaneously in the naturally settled state, free of the proliferation and resolution of thoughts, neither focusing your senses on nor letting your gaze wander to the manifestation of sensory experiences. Rest naturally lucid in the supremely spacious state of complete openness. And maybe we can come back in future weeks and, and look at that. But that, that for me was uh, a main part of my practice. And so then it's always the challenge. I'll just close with two things. It's always the challenge how to bring a retreat into daily life. And for me, in a lot of retreats, what's been actually very important is to actually have my home conditions be a little more suitable. So I often engage in home beautification projects, what I'd like to call interior decoration, which is a meditative term. And again, same thing happened. Oh my God. I woke up at two in the morning one morning and said, I have to have less clutter. And then, you know, and that, then I wrote down, I wrote down things for two or three hours. I complete, you know, plan. And then I went back to my meditation. You know, things happen. Sometimes there's just these intuitions come at two in the morning about something one has to do in one's life and they, or whatever, you know, or something that's not quite right. And so, you know, bringing into daily life all of this is a challenge. And I have a lot of motivation to have my daily life be um, continually closer to the depths of retreat practice. It's really, the, I think, all of our aspiration if we do retreats. So I'll just close with two things. One of them was, uh, I, just, I thought some of the lines from my father were nice. Keep it simple, keep it going, enjoy yourself. <laughs> Very suitable. And then uh, the last thing I'll say is that towards the end of the retreat, um, yeah, it's okay to have the responses you know, if you want. But um, towards the end of the retreat, um, um, as I was sitting, you know, I, I said sometimes shamans come back with songs and I had started to have songs going through my mind towards the end of the retreat. Um, but these were kind of like not you know, deep, intense, spiritual melodies. <laughs> this is more like a Broadway musical. <laughs> and the, the refrain was, I didn't write everything down, but I wrote down the last thing. The refrain was, Deep down inside, we're all realized. <laughs> Deep down inside, we're all realized. It's like following particular Broadway tunes, so I'll leave you with that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening and being willing to hear my and see my slideshow. <laughs> and we have about 10 minutes or a little bit more. 
about 10 minutes or so, if there are any questions of any kind or observations, discussions, any, really anything that you'd like to bring up, please. Yeah. The participants, which can be very disconcerting um, and anxiety-provoking, yeah. disruptive. Then I thought, well, you know, this is about uh, impermanence yeah. and change. Yeah. So I am going to address that uh, with the members yeah. and uh, see what can come out of it, impermanence and change. How... how, how it's part of the larger world. Yeah. And uh, also, since this is focused on um, death of a, a mother, you know, the impermanence and death and what that means. So I'm going to try that and present it and see if people can respond to that. Really? So they can tolerate it. Yeah, so really there's a great, a great story about really applying, you know, having um, insights into something unresolved. Uh, when you came here, that had a little more resolution from reflecting on impermanence, some other teachings, hearing the talk, and so forth. And, then, and as you were saying that, I was also thinking that all of us have unresolved issues of different kinds, you know, whether they're interpersonal. Some of us have more than one unresolved issue. <laughs> okay. And, you know, they may... Okay. Oh, I won't go further with that. But, but uh, there's a way in which um, um, meditation and retreats uh, work with uh, unresolved issues in quite an interesting way. Not so much by thinking about them or figuring them out or by belaboring them or going down familiar mental, emotional grooves, but somehow uh, we sometimes get a distance from them in a different way. Sometimes we get a distance from the unresolved issues like on a retreat, and then maybe don't even deal with them. And at some point, there's some insight or intuition which operates almost with a different level of the mind that actually sees into something. Sometimes that's sparked maybe here partly by hearing teachings, like saying you're hearing principles, impermanence, um, death, you know, whatever, uh, prioritize. And we, that's, that's a value of hearing talks or doing readings. Sometimes we have this unresolved issue and we come to a talk and just something gets, oh, shifted a little bit, like happened here. And that's, it's really uh, something we can actually trust th- as we stay with this process that there is room to deal with unresolved issues, but it's actually not always directly. It's kind of like a direct, in, more indirect approach that works with our intuition with our whole being. It's quite interesting, isn't it, how that, how that happens. I'm sure we've all had many uh, experiences of that. Please. Yeah. Uh, I've heard you uh, speak before about when you go on a retreat, you don't yeah. go to the meditation hall. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> what I found was the reason I come to class, yeah. one of the reasons I come to class or go on retreat is the the energy of the group in meditation helps me keep focused and, and enhances yeah. my concentration. Yeah. And so uh, 
I and and I and I meditate by myself too, but sometimes yeah. it's a little struggle and yeah. it seems that it's easier to do in a group for me. So yeah. um could you speak to that? I mean, does it happen after you've meditated for many, many, many years? You just it's you go off you develop more skill and can go off by yourself and yeah. you need the group or Yeah, so a question about the you know, in this case my own connection with the a uh, larger group of, of other retreatants and reflecting that uh, being with others can often really be very, very helpful for one's own practice. So is, is what I'm talking about uh, something that comes with a lot of experience, let's say. Um, probably multiple factors, you know. Um, uh, you know, I, ha- I have been practicing for... Uh, uh, actually, uh, almost 40 years since I was fairly young. And um, um, some of those, some, at times, I have done uh, retreats in solitude. My main motivation for this is more just to have the flexibility of practice and wanting to sit longer periods. But uh, for long number of years, probably just until seven or eight years ago, all of my retreats were in the hall and with others and, you know, being part of the immediate group energy. But I can tell you that being in my room, I'm very much connected with other people on the retreat. And there's, there's, a, uh, there's a large energy and support structure which I felt very much supported by. And, and so... Uh, um, but it is, you know, there is a little more self-reliance for sure. And uh, um, uh, so I think it is something that uh, I'm definitely not recommending. And I'm just stating this is what I've done. Uh, I did it for particular purposes. Not, uh, uh, and if, 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 if my meditation was less effective because of it, it would not be a wise choice, right? So it's very personal. But that um, um, uh, it is sometimes, you know, some people do that. It's more people who follow their own rhythms a little bit more. There's a benefit to that. You know, historically, actually, group meditation is a uh, innovation that took place in China. <coughs> and even now in Thailand or Burma, uh, I think there's some group meditation, but traditionally people meditate in their own huts or whatever. And in India, the tradition was uh, more solitary meditation. People would get together sometimes. But group meditation was something that developed actually in China, Japan, and more in that area. More, I think, probably coming little bit more out of the Confucian ethic and the emphasis on community. Whereas the Indian, you know, in Tibet there wouldn't be that much group meditation. It'd be, it was more the tradition of the uh, solitary wandering yogi who sometimes connected with others but mostly was on his or her own. So it's interesting, yeah. But uh, and we've, we've really taken the group model, you know, it's the main model in this country. Yeah. What about during the Buddhist time? Was, do you think it was individual or, or group meditation? Uh, I think people would come together for talks, but they'd be primarily on their own. I mean, they'd be near each other. Yeah. They'd be near each other. It's not like they'd be, you know, 
because there would often be a group of people, you know. Uh, I don't know if I've heard descriptions. I, I have heard descriptions of Tibet, like uh, there might be 200 or 500 people who would all have their meditation place on the side of a mountain or something, right? And so they'd be near each other. They'd come together for meals. Meals are always what draw people together. <laughs> Quite often. So uh, the same thing in, in Thailand. Uh, I have stayed at monasteries there, and people would practice in their own cottages, or sometimes in the forest, but they'd come together for meals. Yeah. Please, yeah. Um, I was wondering um, if you could share, how do you think about the concepts of the meditation and being present practice, Yeah. and the positive thinking practice as it exists in our life? I personally find... Um, uh, a sense of greater uh, hope. Um, I'm able to turn situations if I work through mantras that help me see it for what it is. There's some yeah. reflection that tries to look at the positive side. I think yeah. something to the point where they say that it's five to one negative to positive bias in the average brain. So yeah. we have to work so hard with the positive. But I feel when I'm being positive, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to use the mind rather than be present. Yeah. To yeah. Use it as a tool. I was wondering what your thoughts are and where they intersect and how yeah. you think about your life. So a question about using uh, what we might call positive thinking or directing the mind um, towards um, positive or skillful or wise principles, thoughts, directions. Um, that's very valuable, and it's. Um, I think if we if we conceive of it as a tool. Not the tool, but a tool in our toolbox. We can uh, any tool, any practice we can misuse, uh, and that's why I think it's quite valuable to have this set of core practices that really get at the different parts of our mind, the parts of our being. And so, uh, our culture is uh, generally, um, for many of us, not for all of us, many of us, we tend to focus on the critical or the glass half empty, or the, the negative. I know that very well from working with people on judgments and so forth. It's very common. And so for most of us, having practices which um, uh, incline us towards the positive is very valuable as a culturally specific response to our conditioning. Very, very helpful to do that. And we have that in meditative ways. We have that in a few different ways. We can think of the practices of, of the heart, of loving kindness, forgiveness, uh, mudita particularly. It's focusing on the beautiful. You know, like we learn as a practice how to do that. Very, very valuable. Tremendous uh, antidote to tendencies to think critically. And it's interesting, while you were saying that, I was thinking that I know there's a, there's a famous writer on relationships, John Gottman, some of you know his work, who said that, every healthy relationship has to have a five-to-one ratio. Five, to, five positives for every negative. And you have, and over time, you know, if you have a strong enough relationship, you can survive a month or a year where the ratio is different, right? But it's generally, he, he, so it's actually interesting you cited that ratio. Um, but I think, of course, we could misuse that. We could use that to not deal with the hard stuff in our lives. Uh, to not to not look at things, um, 
to, to avoid, we could use it for avoidance, we could use it, it could be used for self-deception. And so every tool can be misused. Um, although it's said that mindfulness is always helpful. <laughs> you know, but we could, uh, you know, we could use loving kindness as a reason not to look at this part of my life. Oh, I'm just going to hang out as much as I can there. Right? And so very valuable, particularly for many Westerners who have their critical capacities uh, uh, um, uh, jacked up. (laughs) An extensive operation is what it's going to say. And of course, those critical capacities have themselves tremendous value when used appropriately to see problems clearly, to point out the 10 aspects by which there's a problem. (laughs) You know, that can be valuable. But again, that can be misused. We know how that's misused, right? Very well. And so I think that I think I would say uh, valuable. And for a, a given individual, it could be a key practice, a main practice for a period of time. But we want to bring it together with the other practices in the long run. So we have this full set of tools, which get at the different parts of our being. So nice question. Thank you. Can we be, last one. I'm going to be brief with this, though. It, was the month-long retreat done in silence also? Yeah. Was the month-long retreat done in silence? Um, that was an easy question to answer. <laughs> um, yes, uh, except for we would meet with a teacher for about 15 or 20 minutes three times, uh, three times. A, week, a week. A week, so roughly every two days. And then uh, some people, you know, we each had a work which you know, could take up to about 45 minutes. And sometimes there was a need, if you're working in the kitchen, for a little bit of what we call functional speech. Or if you need, you know, if something comes up, you need to talk to the manager. We have two managers typically, who would meet our needs in different ways, uh, and we would talk with them. But basically, to uh, otherwise outward speech, th- there was a uh, general silence, you know. And uh, you know, when one first does a retreat, that can seem hard or a lot. But as one does these, they you get used, to, really get used to it. Would you say that, Marty? You really get used to it where it's, it's actually comfortable. And there's, generally for most people, there's plenty of inner speech to make up for what you're missing <laughs> outwardly. <laughs> Sometimes it's even maybe more. Yeah, yeah. so, but it, it yeah, one, I certainly, I remember the first time I did like a day, a day of meditation, it was like this huge thing. I was really scared. Even, I remember the first retreat I ever did, I thought I would run out of energy. And so I was really cautious. Yeah, better not use up too much energy here. And, you know, and that kind of passes. So uh, there can be a certain anticipation going into more silence. But generally, uh, virtually everyone I know, you, you work through that. And you see it, it actually can be a very safe and supportive and beautiful space. And a kind of a wondrous place for transformation. Really quite magical. Yeah. So thank you, and we'll thank you so much for listening, and thank you. I I felt in a way you were all supporting us, me and Marty and Sylvia, in our retreat, and we want to uh, really offer the benefits of our retreat to you, also all other beings, (laughs) and offer the the morning as well to, to all of us, extending outward, offering the fruits of our practice to all beings. 
Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.